Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. We say that these times are difficult, and we're right. But they are not more difficult than 10,000 other times in history. My benchmarks for perspective include Nazi Germany, the Jim Crow South, and South African apartheid. To be a student of history is to be inspired over and over by the courage and resiliency of people. Mahatma Gandhi said, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the ways of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. They fall. Take heart. American political scientist and Harvard professor Dr. Erica Chenoweth studies terrorism, civil war, and revolution. She used to accept the strategic logic of violent armed force for achieving major social and political change. But then she was exposed to the principles and history of nonviolent resistance and she got curious. It turned out that the question of which tactic was more effective, violence or nonviolence, had never been systematically studied. Dr. Chenoweth and a colleague, Dr. Maria J. Stefan, began a two-year research project to find out. They collected data on all violent and nonviolent campaigns from 1900 to 2006 that had resulted in the overthrow of a government or in a territorial liberation. They created a data set of 323 mass actions. They analyzed nearly 160 variables related to success criteria and concluded that nonviolent civil resistance is far more effective in producing broad-based change. Despotic regimes typically rely on a noxious mixture of propaganda, patronage, apathy, political legitimacy, and a calibrated use of public and covert violence to generate a blanket of fear. However, it turns out that fear and apathy are brittle. Nonviolent resistors can hammer the first cracks in that edifice by creating low-risk ways for citizens to signal solidarity with one another and see through a regime's subterfuge. There are, says Dr. Erica Chen, with four factors in the success and the power of nonviolent resistance. First, movements need people. 
and nonviolent movements permit large, diverse, and sustained participation. There's a much lower barrier to being part of a movement if you don't have to buy a weapon and know how to use it. Second, movements need to elicit a shift in loyalty in security forces. Security forces are often employed as the agents of repression, and their actions determine just how violent a confrontation is going to be. There are other loyalties to win as well. The business community, for example. Dr. Chenoweth says there are lots of different pillars that support the status quo. And if they can be disrupted or coerced into non-cooperation, then that's a decisive factor. Third, movements need to do more than just stage protests. There need to be lots of variety in the methods, social media campaigns, and educational forums, for example, by which they win hearts and minds. And fourth, and perhaps hardest of all, when a movement is repressed, which is inevitable when something is calling for change, it's critical that it doesn't descend into chaos or turn to violent means. If movements are thrown into total disarray when they're met with repression, or use it as a pretext to militarize their campaign, they've essentially given the regime exactly what it wants, for the resistors to play on its playing field. And, writes Dr. Chenoweth, they're going to get totally crushed. One nonviolent strategy that does not entail protesting in the streets is a boycott or a strike in 1955 to 1956, the Montgomery bus boycott, in which African-American people and their allies refused to ride the public buses until they were integrated, produced a huge and lasting success. In 1986, anti-apartheid activists launched a Christmas season boycott of white-owned businesses around Johannesburg. People continued to work at white businesses, but they didn't buy their products. After several months, the white businesses were in crisis and demanded that the apartheid government do something to alleviate the economic strain. One of the conclusions of Drs. Chenoweth and Stefan was that just 3.5% of the population needs to participate in a nonviolent protest to affect lasting change. In the United States, that would be around 11.5 million people, a mere three times the size of the 2017 Women's March. Massive, sustained non-cooperation could change everything. And finally, their research concluded that countries in which there were nonviolent campaigns, compared to countries in which there were violent campaigns, were about 10 times likelier to transition to democracies within a five-year period. Here's the most astonishing thing of all. It didn't matter whether at the time the nonviolent campaign succeeded or failed. The seeds had been planted. Here's a glimpse of five such campaigns. In 1913, 5,000 women marched on Washington, D.C., demanding the right to vote. While the struggle for suffrage had begun over 60 years earlier, the suffrage parade was the first national event for the movement. British suffragist Emmeline Pankhurst said, we are here not because we are lawbreakers, we are here in our efforts to become lawmakers. 
In a photo, a woman holds up a sign reading, to ask freedom for women is not a crime. Seven years later, the 19th Amendment was finally ratified, granting women the right to vote. If you haven't seen Sir Richard Attenborough's Gandhi, I commend you to it. One of the scenes that remains most vivid to me is that of the salt marsh, when in 1930, the Mahatma walked over 240 miles across India to protest the law that no Indian could collect or sell salt. Arriving at the Arabian Sea, in an extraordinary gesture of defiance, Gandhi leans into the water and picks up a small handful of salt. 17 years later, India declared its independence from Britain. In 1956, reflecting on that Supreme Court decision that ruled segregation on public buses unconstitutional, Rosa Parks said, people always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically, or not more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. And I was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old. I was 42. No, she says, the only thing, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. On September 8th, 1965, the Delano Grape Strike was organized to end the exploitation and abuse of America's farm workers. It lasted for five years and was characterized by community organizing, marches, and nonviolent resistance. Six months later, Mexican-American labor organizer and civil rights activist Cesar Chavez embarked on a 300-mile march from Delano to California's state capital, Sacramento, to bring widespread public attention to the farm workers' cause. When a consumer boycott was called, more than 17 million Americans stopped buying California grapes, ultimately securing unions and security for farm workers. And one more. Have you heard of the singing revolution? Music and social activism have long fueled nonviolent resistance. In 1988, more than 100,000 Estonians gathered and sang for five nights to protest Soviet occupation. Ultimately, the singing revolution lasted over four years, with various protests and acts of defiance ultimately leading to the restoration of independence of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. There is a line of nonviolent activism extending from Jesus to Mahatma Gandhi, to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a line filled in by these co-conspirators and followers, and they were neither the first nor the last. What each of them has in common is a devotion to nonviolence, not only as a political strategy, but as a way of life, a courageous, active, peaceful resistance to evil contradicting the notion that the ends are justified by the means. Gandhiji proclaimed that the means are the ends in progress. And these, he said, are the means. This is his six-point guide to what he called soul force. One, respect everyone, including yourself.
No one said this was going to be easy. The first principle of Unitarian Universalism is the affirmation that every person has inherent worth and dignity. I find myself leaning heavily on the word inherent. It helps me to remember that even when someone behaves in a way that does not deserve respect, somewhere deep inside they are possessed of worth and dignity. And whatever we're doing, we're seeking to defeat injustice, not people. Deploring the sin, but not the sinner. Although our opponents may frame it as a power struggle, we are in a struggle for justice. To that end, humiliation is never to be used as a tool. Humiliation, says Gandhi, only degrades everyone. One of the most interesting things about the practice of nonviolence is its sheer utilitarian nature. A commitment to nonviolence means accepting suffering without retaliation, as suffering has tremendous educational and transformational possibilities. On May 3rd, 1963, Birmingham Police Chief Bull Connor unleashed attack dogs and trained fire hoses on thousands of young civil rights protesters, including children. The water pressure was set at a level that would peel bark off of a tree or separate bricks from mortar. That night, horrifying images filled the television screens in living rooms throughout this country, changing hearts and minds. A New York Times editorial called it a national disgrace. Ultimately, the Birmingham campaign burnished Dr. King's reputation, ousted Connor from his job, forced desegregation in Birmingham, and directly paved the way for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibiting racial discrimination in hiring practices and public services throughout the United States. To be constructive wherever possible, says Gandhi, obstructive when necessary. American systems theorist, inventor, and futurist Buckminster Fuller said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And you can't rid yourself of oppression if you're depending on the oppressor for your livelihood. Gandhi initiated 18 projects that enabled the Indian people to take charge of their own society. They became less and less dependent on the regime by creating their own goods and services, thus laying the groundwork for a democracy independent of British rule. Three, cherish the long view. There's a beautiful story from the 1950s when China was in a severe famine. The United States branch of Fellowship of Reconciliation organized a mail-in campaign to convince President Eisenhower to send food, surplus food, to China. 35,000 Americans wrote to him, quoting a single sentence from Isaiah, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. Eisenhower appeared unmoved. But years later, 
at a meeting during which the Joint Chiefs of Staff were considering a proposal to bomb targets in mainland China during the Korean War, Eisenhower announced, gentlemen, since 35,000 Americans want us to feed the Chinese, this is hardly the time to start bombing them. Four, look for win-win situations. Again, says Gandhi, our goal is to build relationships and to make things better for everyone. In his book, Stride Toward Freedom, Dr. King tells the story of an attorney for the city bus company whose biggest fear was a victory for the African-American community over the white community. Hearing this, Dr. King advised the bus boycott participants not to gloat or boast over the victory. Through nonviolence, he said, we avoid the temptation of taking on the psychology of victors, that dynamic of us against them. The more we demonstrate respect for others, the more likely we are to persuade them to behave respectfully. The success of nonviolence is in the relationships that are healed. And five, use power carefully. While there is a power that comes from threats, brute force, and out of the barrel of a gun, it is ultimately powerless if we refuse to comply. If the other side is not responding to our call for justice, then we must, Gandhi says, not only speak to the head, but move the heart also. Even bitter hostilities can be vanquished when the eyes of our opponents are opened. The changes, he says, brought about by persuasion are lasting. One who is persuaded stays persuaded. But someone who is coerced will just be waiting for a chance for revenge. And finally, six, claim our legacy. When we use nonviolence, when we win or we lose, we are doing our part to change hearts, to change minds. Beloved spiritual companions, let us take to heart the hard work of living lives of nonviolence, loves of life, service, justice, peace, lives of soul force. The moral arc of the universe is long, wrote Unitarian minister and abolitionist Theodore Parker, but that moral arc bends toward justice. It bends if we bend it. Let justice roll down, roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. May we join now with our spiritual forebears and step into that mighty stream. Amen. And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I bow to the divine.
in you. Our benediction comes from Tolstoy's War and Peace. I say, let us join with those who love goodness and let there be one banner, real goodness. I want only to say that it is always the simplest ideas that lead to the greatest consequences. My idea in its entirety is that if people unite for evil and constitute a force, then decent people are obliged to do likewise. Just that. Long live real goodness. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. Service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.